0: Hello, witches. This is Kara Kovacs, and this is Business Witch. As a third generation witch, at least, and a business and life coach for mission-driven entrepreneurs and leaders, I teach you how to make money and magic as liberatory practices. Because when we know, seek, and embrace our full potential, we create a better world for everyone. Here you'll find tools, conversations, spells, and inspiration that take you from waiting to creating so you can build the business and life you're oh so worthy and capable of having. Let's go. Hello, witches. Happy new year. If you're listening to this in the present, I'm super excited to chat with our guest today because if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I think you're really going to resonate with a lot of the things that she talks about in her body of work. She is the founder of We Are the Culture Makers. I'm hoping I got that right. And her name is Kelly Deals. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Tell the people a little bit about your work.
1: Sure. I do business through a justice-informed feminist lens. I think that people with under-recognized identities have always been the culture makers. We just haven't been the power brokers. And as a result many resources and basic respect have been withheld from us. So I don't just want to add women, for example, and stir to the existing system. I want to do something different. So I help people build businesses. And we do that, again, through that justice-informed lens. So what does that mean for our business practice? What does our marketing look like? And how is it different from status quo marketing? What are our strategies for cultivating influence and building power, and then how do we steward that responsibly? So those are the things I'm always thinking about when I'm thinking about how do we actually build a business model and a marketing plan? We do it through that lens.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, that is exactly what I think my people are here for. Some of them are here to talk about astrology (laughs) and also hi to you guys because I love my astrology people. But I think we're really passionate about values-based business. And even just looking on your website, you had a whole values tab. And I loved the way that you, I want to just like tell people to go read it because it was such a beautiful, I'd never seen anybody do that before. And it made it so clear who you are and what you stand for, but it also really outlined things that even in my own business, I've been like, issues that have come up that i haven't known how to explain and just the thoughtfulness with which you've shaped your body of work was really exciting to me
1: (laughs) thank you you know i'm really proud of that page and i put it in my menu like it's i want people to go look at my values and practices because if people don't align with it then we're not going to be a good fit and i want people to know what to expect from me in what circumstances and sometimes when we're really interested in someone's leadership in a particular domain, we then expect them to lead in other domains, and that's not necessarily appropriate. So I want to sort of define my lane, where you can expect my contribution, and you know what my, what my boundaries are, what my personal practices are, what goes on beneath the hood of my business. Because things often, in the online world especially, look very shiny and people use all the right words, but what are they paying their assistant Mm -hmm. Those are the questions I want to talk about and think about.
0: No, that's so good. And I think too, that there's also this way of like, this is exactly what you can expect from me. And you can trust that Mm -hmm. as opposed to some of the like posturing or the pressure that we feel to show up in a particular circumstance in a particular way, even if we don't necessarily have a clear understanding for ourselves, where we align with it. And that can feel Because something you talk about in your work is like removing shame from those processes. And I think a lot of people feel a sense of shame, whether it's from inside of them or projected from larger culture, about how they're supposed to use their businesses and their voices and the conflation of personal identity with business as well. And what you wrote really distinguishes that. And that's what I thought was so cool about it.
1: You know, I often tell people, like, if there's anything on there that also describes your business and your approach, like take it, make it your own, you know, don't use it word for word, but you know, use it as swipe copy that you can then build out on your page. And what I think we do when we're transparent about those things and in a way, not just transparent, but like advocating for ourselves and our values and the culture we're trying to build. What happens is there's a domino effect or a ripple effect. When we do it, then other people start doing it. And then suddenly it becomes like a, a new practice and a new way of being. And that is how we author culture. It's not like these grand rupture dramatic moments where like everything is overthrown. It's little bit by little bit, tiny differences add up and make a difference. And then we're in a new world. So I always want people, if they see something that is useful in what I'm doing, yes, please adopt it and make it your own. Like, don't steal my intellectual property. But definitely, you know, if you see something and you want to emulate it, go ahead.
0: Mm. And thank you for that permission, because I feel that way as well. Like, and and even the idea, like, I'm really feeling the we are the culture makers approach to this as the underpinning or the foundation of it because it is those small things that make big shifts. And it is when you learn something from a teacher that then impacts the way that you shape your work. And I'm thinking about this even just in terms, you know, I've been in business now for six years and how my business has iterated and it has changed and how I've divested from certain ideologies that I'm like, somebody told me that that's what I was supposed to do. And I didn't think critically enough about why it didn't feel like the right move for me. I was just like, they know better because they've been around longer. They've been more successful than I have. And so I need to implement this. But it feels bad. Something about it feels bad. And what do I do with that? And then, like, really slowly coming up with a new system. And so, I want to offer people who are listening to this who've maybe felt that in their own work of like, yeah, that was just what that book that everybody told me to read when I started this thing that that's what they said that that's how you do it. And I don't want to do it that way, but I didn't have a different example. And I think what you're talking about is starting to give people that and making those slow changes over time. And that's how we dismantle systems that we are just all coexisting in.
1: Right. We're all in the water, so we're all wet. So we don't need to be like super self-abusive and be like, you know, I am uniquely problematic. And, you know, like we don't need to be there. Where we need to be is understanding that what we were doing in that moment of time, when we were first learning the business stuff, was gaining basic business literacy. And when you're intaking new information, it's hard to then contextualize and critique it. First, you need a foundation. But so that is actually part of the process. And what often happens is when you're gaining that basic business literacy, it is often in conflict or through your values. This happened to me in like 2008 to 2012, right? I was gaining basic business literacy, training in all these marketing programs and all these coaching programs, learning how to do a business. And swallowing my feminist principles because they were in conflict and then thinking that I'm the problem. So what would happen is I would have these systems. I understood, like I'm a marketer. I understood these systems, these formulas that I was supposed to implement. So I'd make these elaborate systems, have a plan and be able to implement it for about three months. And I would go hard, implement the plan, rock my system and then totally collapse after three months and just go silent for three months because there was so much internal dissonance between what I was trying to do and my values. And that dissonance, how I interpreted it at that moment was, oh, I have an upper limits problem. I have an internal self-sabotaging problem. Like I have something inside of me that is blocking me from success because I refuse to follow my own systems that I trained in and paid to learn. Like I'm refusing to follow my own systems. But what is actually happening there is not that you have a problem, right? there's a problem with the tactics. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really want us to understand is that that discomfort you have isn't because you're not uniquely equipped to be an entrepreneur. It's because your conscience is in play. Your analysis is in play. And that shame is... Not because you're a bad person, but because you are having to implement status quo business tactics that don't align with your personal politics and values. And so the moment that we understand that, we can get out of the shame and be like, oh, I'm not the problem, right? This system Mm -hmm. is, these tactics are, these status quo business practices are the problem. And I'm trying to do something different. And that is the moment when our creativity has to come in play,
0: Mm -hmm. right? That's
1: when we have to be like, okay, There is in fact a formula of like X plus Y equals Z number of sales. And if I remove this tactic X that I object to, I actually have to replace it with something else, right? So sometimes what we do in this moment is like, all of these tactics are garbage and I need to throw them all out. And now we are left with nothing, right? Just avoid. And then we have a marketing and sales problem. Mm -hmm. So you have to, whatever you're going to abandon, the status quo tactics that you're like, I'm done with, I divest. You have to replace them with something else. So that's the moment you have to get creative. What do you replace them with? And what you actually have to do usually is experiment. You're like, you'll have a hunch. So my first hunch was I hate these sales pages. These sales pages are totally abusive. They are stoking shame, instigating blame, making people feel like they're defective and then presenting and like manufacturing authority so that people will obey me. And I'm like, That is the antithesis of everything I'm about, right? Like I want deliberate, conscious decision-making, not triggered subconscious obedience grooves. That's not what I want. Mm -hmm. So I hated sales pages, hated them. So I was like, what if I just wrote a sales page like it was a love letter? What if I started with the vision? Like, where are we going together? What if I started with total respect and admiration for my client? What would that sales page feel like? So I just started writing sales pages like that. And they started working, like really, really working. So from there, I reverse engineered, like, what am I doing over and over again? Like, what is internally the structure of this love letter that I'm writing? And then I engineered a structure. Now I have a template for myself of here's the five things that I do in my sales page. Paragraph one is always... Vision. Paragraph two is villain. What is the problem? And it's not the client, right? Paragraph three is, okay, how are we going to do it differently? Paragraph four is a little bit about me and why I'm credible. Paragraph five is what are the boring logistics of the program? In none of that, do I have to shame, blame, or trigger my clients if I lead with vision and write it in a place of basic respect and from deliberate decision-making. And that's how I end up with business practices and systems. So start with that hunch, like where is it uncomfortable? That's mm-hmm. your conscience and your analysis in play. Is there something you can do differently? There is, of course, something to watch for because sometimes the discomfort is novelty or sometimes the different discomfort is we have to stretch for yeah. new capacities. So you really have to carefully yeah. discern, like, is it just that I'm a little bit scared and I have to stretch into a new capacity here? Like being visible is a new capacity. Do I have to stretch to do that? Or is there something here that is morally or politically objectionable? Yeah. So it's a, there's a difference between preference and politics. We want to look for that. And then where there's actual dissonance around political, moral, and internal values, invent, like do an experiment, try something different, see if it works and then double down on it. So it's a lot of experimenting.
0: I think this is also like how we build a new world. And like this conversation is making me emotional because hearing you talk about it is so similar to like me a a couple of years ago being like, wait, because I have a degree in intersectional feminism. I was going to be a social worker. And then I was like hurled into what you call female lifestyle empowerment brands, which we should talk about, thinking like that those things were so disconnected and that I needed to choose one or the other. And the birthing process of like my entire educational background and my business merged, like listening to you talk about it, it makes me emotional. Like I feel emotional guys.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's you're, you're recognizing it, right? And I'm so willing to bet that other people recognize it. So again, if you're another thing to watch for, another indicator that you're in this position and you're not the problem, the systems and structures and business tactics are the problem, is when you find yourself stopping and starting a lot. If it takes profound energy to perform your own brand, that's mm-hmm. an indicator that you're in tactics that you're not aligned with and need to experiment with something else. You mentioned the thing that I call the female lifestyle empowerment brand, right? I say that that's a pattern, a success pattern and a marketing formula that most business trainings in women's spaces teach. And what I mean by that is it's literally four things. So female is standard status quo femininity. You First, the first precondition of this business success is that you need to perform appropriate femininity, be pretty but not too pretty, and you know be really appropriately feminine in order to be deserving of rights and respect. So first, you perform like the perfect woman. Mm-hmm. Then, and many of us can't perform that, like either don't want to, refuse to, are not that. Or literally have identities that could not fit in that box of like white, young, pretty, middle class, all those things. Then, you know, we just can't be those things. So now the whole system's not going to work, right? If you if that's the first precondition is you have to perform appropriate femininity so other people are like, I want what she's got, yeah. now we've got a problem. That system's not going to work. So that's the first thing. Plus, that's just old patriarchy in new bottles, right? That is just patriarchy in high heels. There's nothing new about that that is asking us again to be an object to be consumed to be complicit with you know gender hierarchies that we are opposed to all those things but that's the first thing in this system of success that we learn in women's entrepreneurship spaces. The next thing is lifestyle. What lifestyle actually means is manufactured authority. It means privilege. So perform your lifestyle, wear a maxi dress in front of the Eiffel Tower, show us how rich you are, show us how much leisure you have. Because when people pick up signs of higher status, this is just a human fact, we assume leadership, we assume authority, which then puts us in a a down power position because now we want to obey those obedience Signals. I'm not saying consciously, I'm saying unconsciously. When people pick up status signals, that is where they assume the other person is authority and they default to obeying that person's judgment. Mm. Right. So lifestyle and displaying wealth signals, like having a Louis Vuitton bag on the counter and putting a selfie up or like those little things, wealth posturing you know, income claims, all of those things, leisure, showing us your vacations and all the things that like people are struggling to afford food, that stuff, that lifestyle stuff is actually about building manufactured authority. So people will obey you. And it's honestly, usually the first thing that most online business programs teach you is you need to manufacture authority. So the alternate to that is to actually stand on your real substance, like your real body of work, your values, stand on those things. But then empowerment is, I feel like, the misuse of empowerment. Empowerment is actually a terrific thing. It comes out of, like, Latin resistance theology movements, right? Like, it's actually a thing about a collective strategy for making change in disempowered and under-recognized communities, but it's both individual and collective. So what are the individual things you can do to navigate these circumstances as, you know, and and build collective power? So it's both collective and individual strategy, but in women's spaces, it gets talked about as like personal rise, as though one woman doing really well in an existing system without changing anything is empowerment. That's not empowerment, right? That's just one person like becoming prey, becoming predator instead of prey or moving up the ladder right? So the misuse of empowerment is something that just really ruffles my feathers, right? Like it's, we use really sexy liberation language and political language and feminist language that riles people up and gets them excited, but we're conflating personal success with collective change. They are not the same thing. And then brand, there's nothing wrong with having a brand. A business needs a brand, what I object to is what you're talking about, the conflation, and that comes back to, like, the performance of femininity that we first led with. I don't think it's healthy or wise for women or anyone with an underrecognized identity to present themselves as an object to be purchased, mm-hmm. right? I am not an object to be consumed. That's actually exactly what I'm trying to be resisting, is, like, the objectification of my identity and my personhood. So, I just look at that as like, again, old patriarchy, new bottles. I'm presenting myself as an object for sale in a culture in which women's bodies and lives have always been for sale. There's nothing new about that. So that entire success strategy where we see professionally pretty women in maxi dresses, on luxury vacations, telling us how that we're going to make a million dollars, that is the female lifestyle and power brand. And most of us, cannot perform it or like morally object to that performance. And it's not anything that is going to change our culture, right? I do absolutely want us to have resources. I don't want us to have to perform bullshit in order to get them.
0: Or presume that there's something wrong with us if we can't achieve something because we somehow don't fit into the model. And I think a lot of people made purchasing decisions that really negatively impacted their bank accounts in an effort to participate in, be accepted by, uh, achieve the things that those spaces falsely promised that they were selling, which then makes the entire industry look bad and that's, I mean, the entire reason that my business exists is to address and change that. I, yeah, I know. That's why I'm like <laughs> fangirling. I've never said fangirling on the podcast before. <laughs> Y'all were watching the Zoom room. I'm just sitting here with like my mouth hanging open. Um, but one thing I love that you talked about, which I think is really, really important, is the distinction between critiquing a person, and you mm. have a very specific indications of under what circumstances you would critique a person versus critiquing culture. And I've been thinking about this a lot in my own negative, the negative experiences that I've had where like, harm has happened to me in some of these spaces. And I've had to reconcile that in order to divest from them. But in wanting to create trust with people about how what it is that I have to teach is different, understanding that to critique a particular person who they themselves was acting within the system that they were also subject to is not effective. It's not going to create the kind of change that I want. It's not a distinction about like how my methodology or my way of thinking about things strategically is different. And But I hadn't thought about it of the way that you had framed it of like, we're not here to talk about a person. We're here to talk about the systems in which these exist. I'm curious about that framework, your like thoughts and feelings around it, how it came to be.
1: I get a lot of emails behind the scenes and a lot of DMs saying, have you seen this? What are you going to say about this? Can you do something about this? And it's usually a particular person. And I am not here for that. Right? I am absolutely here for critiquing and making changes, but I know from experience, because I've tried to influence different people, that I have no influence over this person who has 100 million followers and you know in this mass, I don't have any influence over them. So I could make a very thoughtful critique and say, here are the business practices that need to be changed, and all I'll get is like a really nasty and frightening letter from a lawyer, right? So it, it's not effective what is effective what we do have authority over is our own practices so what's more effective for me instead of going on someone else's platform and writing a very thoughtful comment very insightful and then it getting deleted like a better use of my intellectual labor and my time is to put all of that critique on my own website in my own platform not naming the person but naming the business tactics cuz that's actually the problem we don't know anything about the person yeah. they've been they've taught they've been studying the same from the same people we were. We were all taught these status quo business practices. So again, we're all in the water, so we're all wet. So we're all learning from the same place. This is the standard. And some of us have these epiphanies and these moments where we're like, okay, we're gonna lean into our values and invent new systems. So what is useful is to share those systems and those business tactics with people who actually want to use them, rather than the people who wanna guard what they've got and send you really frightening legal letters or initiate lawsuits against you. So I think that's more effective. The people who want those systems and those tactics, share it with them. Like don't throw your seeds on rocks, right? Share them with people who actually want to use them. And then I have a limited amount of time. I can't be focused on spreading all my time, like trying to counteract all the things I don't want to grow. I also have a really strategic decision I'm making, which is controversy builds attention, helps the algorithms. So if someone is controversial and we go on mass and land in her comments, all that does is earn her more money because now she's getting more like signals to the algorithm, all her stuff is showing up in everyone's feeds. not even the controversy stuff, just the stuff right so and people actually bait you into that. There's actually a strategy taught in Ryan Halliday's book about marketing that I forget what it's called now. but it's a strategy. it's like bait the feminist. it's a strategy. So Tucker Carlson, when he, is that the right name? Yeah. Well, oh, no, Tucker Max, when he was writing this book, Ryan Holiday was his PR agent and he went and he bought a billboard about the book and then he climbed it, the billboard in the middle of the night and defaced it with like feminist slogans. And then it made the media, right? And now it's in the media. Now his book is selling. So bait the feminist is a very old strategy for boosting your attention into the mainstream. So we don't want to fall in those traps. So if you object to something and then you go give it a lot of attention on social media, you're boosting it. You're, you're, you fell into the bait, the feminist trap. So I never want my energy to be used to grow something that I don't want to grow. So I put, or I pour all my energy into what do I want to have grow? And then I have like rules for myself. Like I don't critique anyone who has under 30,000 followers. If I were to critique, critique someone, and I rarely, rarely do. Right, I don't go critique someone who's got three thousand followers and and twelve clients. Right, that is that's that's kicking down. Right, that that is not a systemic move. A systemic move is what are the business practices. So I critique a copywriting system, I critique a business training system, and I provide alternatives. That's a waste of my time.
0: That's so much more impactful too, because for somebody who they're not working with the same practitioner that you did. Like they're working with somebody else, but they can see these are the warning signs to look out for. This right. is what you said about like the way that you feel in your body, if you're starting and stopping, like that, those are the systemic indicators. Those are un- more universal, they're more shared. Whereas going after a particular person and their ideology, especially when it's reflective of an ideology that is shared by a bunch of other people, has no measurable
1: impact yeah. in the long term. And it's a massive distraction against the things that you want to grow, right? We have a limited amount of time and energy.
0: Yeah. And our energy in our businesses, I think about this all the time. It's like, I don't want to be looking at particular emails that my assistant should be looking at. Like, it's just not the best use of my brain space. And I teach this in, in Business which my signature course, it's the same name as this podcast, about how you don't want to spend your precious business time like focusing on the one troll in your DMs. You don't want to spend it focusing on the like one refund request. Like spend it in ideation, spend it in like creative brainstorming and strategic visioning. Like you... Where will you be in six months with one versus the other? But
1: well, I well, want- you're saying spend it where you can be impactful, and that's what I'm saying about your social media attention. Spend it where you can be impactful. If I go critique this massive business female lifestyle empowerment brand, I will not be impactful. She's just going to carry on, get more business, and nothing's going to change. That so. I want to use the time where it's impactful. And then I guess the other thing is I'm not, I really want to be clear. I'm not saying we don't speak up against injustice, but a yoga teacher with 3000 followers is not the front line. That's not necessarily where we want to put most of our attention, Mm -hmm. right? If we're doing that, we're not calling our congressmen, but like, let's go where we can be impactful and let's not go after the people with the least resources where it's easiest to win. That's a fake win.
0: Hmm. Mm. I want to shift gears a little bit to talk about ethical pricing. Another thing that we share, you posted something recently about fetishization of pricing. Mm. I think that would be a great place to start because I love thinking about things with metaphors such as fetishization and kink. (laughs) So
1: (laughs) So the first thing I want to say about pricing is pricing is based on a business calculation. Yes. It is not an emotional decision. It is a business calculation, right? How we feel about it is stuff we work out later, but it's a business decision about this is what these services cost in order for me to make these revenue targets, for me to pay my taxes, for me to pay my team, living wages, all those things. It's a business decision. It's a calculation. So what I see though in spaces is people equating, equating prices with self-worth or value, It's not the same thing. And so I see, like, if you believe, I see the whole narrative in the female lifestyle empowerment brand space about, like, if you don't price really, really high, it's clear that you have a self-worth problem and then people won't value your services or honor your boundaries. So you must have a high ticket offer, right? So there's a fetishization of a certain price, which is not even objectively knowable, but there's some kind of price out there that communicates all these things right? So the price becomes this like talismanic object, this fetish mm-hmm. object. And Unless you're displaying it, then those other ritual things aren't true or aren't happening. Mm-hmm. So that's one point. And then in the other space, the space that I'm most comfortable in is the people doing entrepreneurship through that culture-making feminist, anti-oppressive lens. And in that space, there's a critique of capitalism. Excellent. Fantastic. Like, let's do that. And then there's this almost illogical conflation then of if we are anti-capitalist and pro-liberation, that means that we should be providing services to our communities for free or for very low cost. So then we start fetishizing low cost Mm -hmm. as in in like almost the inverse of the other way. Like low cost is now the virtuous, righteous, you know, norm boosting thing. And that's what we should be striving for. Well, that is actually not possible, honestly. For most people, most people who are coaches or service providers have like 12 to 20 clients a year. You can't charge them $300, yeah. right? You're not Walmart. We're not making a volume play. So if your business is a service-based business, you are never making a volume play. Volume plays entail low prices and margins across you know millions. If you aren't serving volume, you can't serve low prices, So like, there's like a business structure here that needs to be paid attention to. So fetishizing low price or fetishizing high price, there is no business model calculation. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's just creating narratives that you're having to obey, whether on like the right or the left, you're having to obey a narrative, which isn't liberation. What is actually important for you to do is to look at your actual costs, what you need to make a profit. You know, you need to look at all of those things and your prices are a function of that. How much, how many clients are you going to serve a year? What is your current audience? Your Mm -hmm. businesses are calculation based, your prices are calculation based on that, not based on a current like fashionable narrative. Let's not fetishize high or low prices. And on both ends of the scale, there's a value judgment being made. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're it's it's there's a worth thing of like and that triggers a lot of shame. So like if I don't charge this, I'm bad. If I don't charge that, I'm bad. Right. We need to get out of those binaries and create new possibilities and a new culture. And then the final thing about pricing is, especially on the spectrum that I like, you know, the justice informed pricing spectrum, that sometimes there's ideological downward pressure on prices that is not realistic. The idea is we're trying to pursue economic justice. I want everyone to remember that they are not simply providers and contributors towards economic justice. We are also recipients of economic justice. So, you charging $300 for something that requires 30 hours so that you can provide services to the community and your beloveds means. You might be contributing, let's say, to economic justice, but you are not receiving it, which means we don't actually have economic justice. Yeah. So you have to remember that you are a factor in the equation and you suffering and you struggling and you going out of business does not author a culture of economic justice. So don't forget to put yourself in the equation. To me, a feminist business is one in which the feminist running the business is also flourishing.
0: Yes, yes. I didn't see this anywhere in your work, but this is making me think about people over-identifying their personal sense of worth, their identity, their innate goodness with their business in a way that depreciates the quality of the service, the ability to create a business plan in which like the business functions independently of if whether or not you're having like a good self-worth day oh <laughs> like that I think it, it's it's complicated because it's so vulnerable to be visible. It's vulnerable to put your intellectual property out into the world. It's vulnerable to care deeply about the results that your clients get. And so I can see how it's a natural inclination to sort of let those things bleed into the mis- identification of your worthiness as a person with Mm. how well the business does. And oh, that is when we're talking about energy leaks, that is a real leak.
1: (laughs) One of my friends and my business partner in several of my programs, Danielle Cohen, does a lot of somatic and energy work and attunement work and also is a super savvy brand builder. She suggests that we think of our businesses as an entity that we're in relationship with. So it's not, your business is not you. It is something you are in relationship with and your business has a soul and you need to be in right relationship. And she says, lots of us have a relationship with our business where we are acting like parent child, where we pour all of our resources, energy, and attention into the business, um, endlessly without sort of expecting anything back, massive energy leak. Instead, she says we should reconceptualize it and think of it as a lover, that we are in mutual relationship with. It is a soul. It's an adult. It is capable of reciprocating. So you can pour into it, but your business also has to pour back into you. So that is a way to sort of retract some of your identity from the business because you are a whole person with your own identity. And the business over here is an entity of its own with a soul and an energy. And there has to be a mutual energy transfer, not just a you pouring it in and draining yourself. So I I love that frame of being in relationship and being in a lover relationship with your business and to think that it has a soul, which comes from Hero Boga, by the way. I love that idea that the business has a soul.
0: Mm. And so if you are newer to business and you're feeling like, I'm I'm thinking of a lot of the clients in my largest program, and if you're feeling like, I haven't seen the fruits of my labor yet, what are some ways that you might encourage people to start... Cultivating early courtship with their business that maybe has not provided ROI. <laughs> right. Okay. So the business is
1: not, not in right relationship with you. It could be, it, this is actually natural early, early stage, right? Like the first three years, this is normal. So this is happening. It's not like you're uniquely bad at business. This is just part of like seed startup phase. So one of the things you can do is look at your time and your pricing. You honestly might be priced too low. So if you're assuming that you're going to be fully booked out and you're pricing as though you're working 40 hours a week and you're going to be fully booked, you're never actually going to hit your revenue goals. So it's always going to be underperforming. And you've actually massively underpriced because you've priced on the assumption that you're working 40 hours when in fact you're working 15. So price based on that 15. So go look at what you are actually booking out, base your your calculations on that, and then only base your calculations on 70% of that. You can never price as though you are 100% booked out because a car running at full speed all the time breaks down mm-hmm. and no car can run at full speed all the time. So look at your business model, look at your pricing and get more realistic. Like how much time do you actually have? What do you need to charge to make the revenue you you want to make on the existing client base? So if you have consistently five to eight clients, don't price like you have 12. Right. Yep. Be, let's like go back and look at your numbers, run the numbers again, numbers heal. And then the other thing is, if you're not getting immediate traction, what we're often trained to do is to go to social media and try and build a traffic based business, which is what I do. I know, I know that business, but a traffic based business takes like three to five years to really, unless you're gonna pour money into ads, to really get a traffic-based business going takes a long time. Once it's there, it scales, it, it goes well, it, it like everything works, it just takes a long time. So in the early stages, or if you don't want a traffic-based business, the fastest way to get clients and sales is conversations. I don't even mean sales conversations. I just mean talking to your peers, talking to your mentors, talking to your neighbor, having coffee with people you don't know, going to networking events, whatever it is, have more conversations and let people know what you're doing. So that if you have tea with someone that you met at this cool event, and then you can follow up and have tea, and you're talking about what you do to each other, and they walk away and go, oh, that's a feminist fitness trainer. I've never heard of anything like that. That's so amazing. And two weeks later, their sister-in-law is like, I need a trainer, but they're so fat phobic and they make me feel so ashamed. You're like, I just met a feminist fitness trainer. Let me connect you. That is how you get clients right? Mm -hmm. And also going back to your old clients. And the more, all I'm trying to say is the more conversations you're having on a regular basis, the more clients you have and quickly. So the fastest way to get clients and to get sales is to get in more conversations with people. Jessica Lackey, you should follow her. She's amazing. Also a feminist business coach, Harvard trained, real deal, like former consultant, really savvy about building businesses. She says there is a correlation. The number of clients you're having this month correlates to how many clients you have in three months. So the fastest way to get ROI, more conversations in whatever way works for you. So I don't like going to networking events. I'm a one-on-one person, but there are, I can go to put on my website, for example, or send an email saying, Hey, I'm available for a free virtual coffee. If you want to chat with me and we've never chatted before, click here and book a link, you know, book a call. So I have these no pressure conversations. I am not trying to sell anyone. I just want people to know I exist.
0: I think, okay, that is another, I think, really important thing that messes so many people up is that they believe that the intention of this is to sell. Right. They lead with that energy, which they then feel self-shame about because they, one, wouldn't like anybody to do that to them. And two, they think that they're supposed to master somehow doing that authentically and I could say like every networking event I've ever been to, every like coach weekend retreat thing, I always sign a client at those things. Always. But I'm not
1: doing that. Wait, because- try to have conversations. Energetically, things happen. Yeah. Now people know you exist. There's a reason people go to networking events and hand out business cards because now someone knows you exist. That's all that has to happen in those conversations. There are sales conversations that ha- happen, but you want to be really clear. Like, okay, now we're going to have a sales conversation. So even on those conversations, sometimes people will be like, oh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll tick on something that I've said. And like, oh, well, can you tell me more about that? Like, maybe we should work together. And I'll be like, okay, we can talk about that. But like, let's book a call to mm-hmm. talk about that. Cause I don't want to pollute this energy. We right now are having a no strings attached conversation, getting to know each other if we want to have a sales call, then let's have a sales call. And I walk into sales calls with the energy of, let's see if there's a fit.
0: Mm-hmm. I know
1: I'm skilled. I know I have something to offer. Let's see if we're a fit. And, and I think
0: for new practitioners as well, learning that you have something to offer is more important than learning how to sell. Because when you know you have something to offer, selling is easy.
1: Right. Also, this is where the the online stuff Helps having a website where your prices are listed and the services are listed, and then someone books a call with you. They already know what you charge, they already know if they can afford it or not. They're leaning towards yes, right? So they're showing up ready to buy. They're just checking fit. They have some unanswered questions and they want to see if you have chemistry and if they can trust you. So you don't even have to sell them, you just have to answer the questions and see if there is indeed a fit. And sometimes the way to build the most trust is to refer people out. If you're like, this is not a fit, refer people out. They will send way more people back to you because now you're like a person of integrity. Mm-hmm. And here's what I want people to know about selling. Again, this is the best standard status quo stuff. That stuff messes us up because we think we have to trick people into doing things. And we think we need to extract from people. All selling is, is relationship. All it is is communication. So most of us already have the skills we need to connect authentically to people. And if we walk into an, a situation thinking, I have something to offer, we're gonna, we're gonna connect. I'm good at reading people. You know, I understand relationships. You already have what it takes to sell. You don't have to do all these tricks, right? I, I don't even like the idea that we have to overcome objections. I don't wanna overcome anyone's objections. So that's, that's why- like I will I will coach someone if they're struggling with something right but I I I can coach them through like here are some ways to make a decision without supplying an answer you know and often we need to do that because we've been trained to value ourselves and invest in ourselves and our businesses but I don't want to overcome someone's objections I want them to make an informed decision about something that's going to work for them so we don't have to extract trick pressure Trigger anyone into anything. If you just take that out of your frame, selling becomes a lot easier. You don't have to have any shame about it. You are not extracting resources. And finally, remember that people like to buy things. <laughs> it is a very pleasurable experience to buy something that matters to you and that is an investment in your well being, your business, whatever. It is pleasurable right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason people have shopping addictions. It is pleasurable. I don't want to trigger a shopping addiction, but you know what I'm saying? So don't yeah. think you're doing something harmful to people, right? You're giving them the opportunity to make decisions that benefit them. If it doesn't benefit them, then they can opt out. Yeah. So we don't have to extract. We don't have to prey upon people. We don't need to trick them. We just need to be in relationship with them and know that we have something to offer.
0: And I think for people listening, I hope that they can feel kind of some spaciousness around them and just taking that on of like, oh, yeah, I don't even need to participate in that. And it kind of is full circle to what we were talking about in the beginning. If you have such an extreme sense of dissonance when you go into a sales call about the way in which you feel you have to sell somebody something, you're already depreciating energetically the quality of the experience that you're providing to that person which I would imagine for most people listening to this episode is not congruent with the values that you have for your business. And so if you remove that, what happens? And congratulations, like you're a lot closer to making the money you want to be making
1: and you feel better. I mean, it's also a numbers game. So this is why, again, we need to be having a lot of conversations. We're not going to convert every call. If we're converting every call, we're probably priced too cheap, right? Like, we're not going to convert every call. So you just want to have more and have them in a like lower stakes way. So if, if you have 20 sales calls booked for a month, which would be extraordinary and fabulous, then you know, you're going to convert a certain number. You don't go in with the energy of like, Oh God, I gotta, I gotta get this. Mm-hmm. Right. So track your data, understand that you need four sales calls to get one client and then make sure if you need three clients a month that you're doing 12 sales calls. Right. So data, again, numbers can heal and they can take some of the anxiety away. I think people
0: have a anxiety about looking at the numbers in the first place.
1: Of course. Yeah.
0: yeah. And you so keep we can saying numbers can heal. And yeah. like, I just want to flag that. I well, I mean, it's know.
1: good. In, look at it this way. It's good information. Yeah. Right. Like I had a conversation recently where I was feeling like someone in my life was not backing me up in the way that they ought to back me up. And I knew it and I could feel it. And it was like, I knew it, it was a real problem. And they kept denying it and they kept denying it and kept denying it. And finally they said, well, you know what? In other situations, this, this, and this happened which makes me question your judgment. And then it's hard to line up behind you. And it was such a relief, honestly, to hear that. Cause it was like, I knew it, I felt it. I picked it up on my body. I saw it in the actions. And when you're telling me it's not happening then I feel totally discombobulated. But mm-hmm. when you admit to me that you question your judgment, well, now we have good information. Now yeah. we can do something about it, right? Now you, I can explain to you why I made these decisions so you can see that there's a logical process, yes. right? So the, the, even the difficult data can be such a relief because now we have something to work with. Like yeah. faking and pretending, we can't work with that. I'm, I have a, a metaphor for this that
0: is occurring to me. I have type 1 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And when I wake up in the middle of the night, And I'm like, I think my blood sugar is low, but I don't want to like fully wake up because then I'll be awake. I'm like ignoring it and I'm laying in bed, ignoring it. And then instead of still sleeping, which is what I actually want, what I'm now doing is obsessing about whether or not I'm okay. (laughs) Ruminating. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like, I could have just gotten up and checked. Yes. And it would have been shorter. I would have known if I needed to do something about it, I probably would have gotten to bed faster. And now I'm having both anxiety and I like might be having an emergency. That I'm
1: ignoring. Right, that's real. Right. And there's a culture making analogy here as well, which is if we pretend that racism, sexism, capitalism, imperialism, colonialism, if we pretend those things don't exist, if we pretend what Leila Sad calls systems of supremacy don't exist, then we carry on, la, 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 nothing changes and harm occurs, right? Mm -hmm. Like you said, you could be in an emergency. But there is a reckoning moment where we reckon with what reality is, and then we get into power and take action. So, this is the same thing. So, yes, shame will pop up. So, do what you need to do to take care of that. Like, take care of yourself. What is your self care plan? right? If you're going to go in and look at your numbers and you know you're going to go into a shame spiral, is there someone who can support you? Do you need an appointment with your therapist? I see my therapist every Friday. Like, what do you need to do to take care of yourself? What do you need to do to feel the feeling of love? In the book, The Art of Money, Barry Tesler has these money dates with herself where she puts on music, she lights a candle, she has some dark chocolate, and she looks at her numbers. She tries to make it a pleasurable experience. So it is a real emotional thing. I don't want to like shoo, shoo, poo, poo that away. That's a real thing. So take care of yourself, do what you need to support yourself, get the support you need in those moments so that you have that good information. And now you're into power and you can take action. But when we're pretending, we're not taking any kind of action, right? We're just carrying on getting more of the same. So if
0: people wanted to take action to find out more about you and your work, where would you like to direct them?
1: I would love for them to join my Sunday love letter. So every Sunday I send out a newsletter and it is fortifying. It's inspiring. It's meant for you to build up your power and practical strategies for building resources in this culture. So you could go to kellydeals.com slash subscribe. And I guess the other thing is, is I have a program. It's a year long group coaching program called We Are the Culture Makers. And it is literally about how we build power, how we take back our time, how we build resources. And I share a self-coaching tool that instantly gets you out of self-doubt and into power on a daily basis that you can do in seconds. And then throughout the year, we go through all the things that we've been trained to be ashamed of that are actually sources of power, right? Like our bodies, our community care, our time, our money, all of those things. We're going to like flip the script on them and figure out how to get out out of shame and into power.
0: Beautiful. Well, we will link those for people in Thank the you. show notes. And I have some questions. I always ask guests when I remember at the end of the show. Let's and the do it. Is, what is your sign?
1: Pisces. And do you know your rising out of curiosity? I have a report. Teresa Reed did this incredible report and I can't remember. I'm sorry. I'll have to
0: I'll have to follow up with you about it personally because that's just per- it's a selfish question that I ask the guests. And then the last question is, what's your why? Why do you do what you do?
1: I want a future in which we all flourish.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing time with us
1: today. Thanks for having me and everyone who's listening. Your attention is a gift, and I thank you. See you next time, witches.